This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a brand new song from Matsudiso. But first, the story that inspires the song. Hi, I'm Charlie Gilmore. I'm a writer, author, most recently of Featherhood, a memoir about fathers and birds. When I started writing Featherhood, my last book, I really thought it was a was a very funny book about birds, and then it became something much deeper. It was a book about fatherhood, about my own complicated relationship with my biological father, who was a very complicated man. He was a poet and a magician called Hesketh Williams, who disappeared in the dead of night when I was a baby. So I, I grew up not knowing my biological father, but knowing a lot about him. He was this charismatic magician. He was a lover of animals who once shat in his own hand and threw his shit at a Dutch performance artist who was about to have sex with a live goose and then he ran away with the goose. He once accidentally set his head on fire while trying to impress a girlfriend with the sort of fire-eating skills. I sort of grew up with all of these amazing stories that made him sound like this, you know, like a, like a, like a, like a sort of cross between um, Fagin and Albus Dumbledore, you know, it was like, you know, so a sort of young boy is like, yeah, of course I want to meet the man who can, like, teach you how to steal and do magic and breathe fire, like, uh, yes. And so we met for the first time since he had vanished when I was a baby at uh, Yo Sushi in Paddington Station, of all places. And um, my adoptive father, David is a wonderful, kind, caring, you know, the, the, the sort of best dad you could hope for, took me there to meet him. And there was this sort of weird meeting of the fathers where they handed over, one, the adoptive father handed over the son to the, the abandoning biological father. And um, Hesket went to shake David's hand, but he was so stuffed full of magic tricks and he had these incredibly powerful magnets up his sleeve and so his hand stuck to the metal bar top of Yosushi and he was sort of jerking his hand away from the bar top trying to shake my dad's hand. And he was very funny and great and we got along. And then we had this one meeting again after that and then and then he just cut me off again without without any warning. And that, that was confusing because I didn't understand what I had done to deserve this. Throughout my life, I sort of kept having these incredibly unsatisfactory, uh, increasingly, I would say, emotionally damaging encounters with this man. You know, this man who never, ever, ever explained why he couldn't cope and why, you know, he kept on disappearing. So one day in spring, a few years ago, my then-girlfriend, Jana, she just turned up with this cardboard box that had a baby magpie inside, and I thought, oh, no, you know, I've got to watch this creature die, because, you know, I sort of grew up bringing all sorts of things home, and basically they always end up in the same place, which is a cardboard box at the bottom of a shallow grave. And so I thought, you know what, you get on with that, have fun, I'm going to be over here. And she 
you know, she, she figured out what to do with this baby bird and she, by some miracle, kept it alive. And it was, you know, sort of beautiful ball of fluff about the size of a child's fist with these amazing sort of mineral blue eyes. And so I sort of reluctantly took an interest in this thing. And then she suddenly said, you know, I've actually got to go to Paris for a job. I'll see you in a week. You know, have fun, you two. And she left me alone with this bird. And over the course of that week, we developed an incredibly close bond, possibly too close. You know, she learned to sort of uh, climb up and nest in my hair and would go to sleep there. And I would sort of be the ultimate mother bird and feed her sort of worms from my mouth to her beak. And, you know, very quickly became this wild and disgusting relationship. And so when it came time to release this bird, we let her go and she flew up into the air and up into a big circle and landed right back down on my head. And that was us for the next few years. My biological father, by some completely strange coincidence, a few years before I was born, uh, had a very similar experience with another member of the crow family with a jackdaw that he adopted and raised like a child and let roost in his hair and sleep at the end of his bed and they used to hunt worms together and dig treasure together. In fact, Charlie discovered that his biological father had written a poem about his experience called Being Kept by a Jackdaw. For this episode, I wanted to let his poem and my writing about my magpie have a sort of conversation with each other. This is Charlie Gilmore reading at a live show in the clock tower of St. Pancras Station in London. Jackdaw. Devon and Cornwall, 1985. At a country fair, a couple called Dave and Di Nelstrop came from Bow in Devon to sell tansy pancakes, bringing skillets, a brazier, a mound of flour and eggs. They drew customers to their tent by the good smell. Behind a striped awning, there was a stack of wooden cages which they'd carried with them, each with an injured bird. One was a large crow, a raven they referred to as Aubrey. His door was left open and he caught me in his glare. Between bites washed down with a blue mug of sweet tea, I began confessing to something I'd always yearned for. Ever since childhood, they looked patiently quizzical. I've wanted, I paused again, transfixed by the crow. Hopping on black legs, scanning me with a needle eye, black as those Victorian jetstones from Whitby. I've always wanted to look after a jackdaw, I blurted out. Dave Nelstrop said casually, Oh, we've got one, a fledgling. It was too poorly to, blink, to bring. It's being fed by a dripper with touches of brandy. It just fell out of its nest in a bell tower. They promised to bring it when next they were passing. Magpie, London, 2016. Yana sets the cardboard box with its precious contents very gently down on our bedroom floor. Her sister found it this morning, she explains, and picked it up and brought it to their workshop. In between hammering and drilling, they've been feeding it live grubs from the angling supplier. 
The grubs bite, Yana continues, so you have to crush their heads a little with a pair of pliers or a fingernail before posting them down the bird's hatch. She raises the flaps of the box. A black and white ball of fluff the size of a child's fist is curled up in a corner. It looks dead. It smells dead. I click my tongue at the creature and one of its eyelids flutters open. Its eye is mineral blue. Isn't there someone else who can deal with this, I say, like, I don't know, a vet? Jackdaw, 1985. Does it have a name? I asked when they arrived. Could call it Jack, Dave suggested. Surname of Daw, he grinned, until something else better occurs. Almost immediately I became the bird's captive, existing solely to attend to its needs, wondering if I'd experienced Stockholm Syndrome, which means you fall in love with your captors. But this bonsai pterodactyl was quite hard to love, a dive-bombing comet of energy and appetite. At daybreak, its beak was pushed between my lips, searching for a morsel from last night's meal. A bony road drill picking at your teeth was how Jack alerted you to the unpalatable fact that instead of being an independent human being, you are now mobile carrion ruled by a bird. Magpie. Before long, the magpie master's flight, flapping joyfully to the windowsill to snap at blue bottles, up to the highest bookshelf in the living room to hide scraps of mints within hardbacks, onto the rim of the bathroom sink, talons clicking on porcelain, to watch with apparent interest as I shower or brush my teeth or pee. What is it like to have a meat-eating bird gazing intently at your penis? It is unnerving. Jackdaw, 1985. There were long days of elation, digging up a patch with a jackdaw perched on your head, keeping watch from its new tower and swooping down to display its skills as a metal detector. Buried bottle tops would be brought to the surface along with fragments of bright silver foil, invoking the ghosts of picnics past. Then sixpences were teased out and offered as treasure trove. A visitor, Bernie Scoos, a poacher from Bristol, said, Tell you what we used to do, boy. Sharpen the edge of a coin and set it under his tongue. Cut through the tendon, then he'll talk. I thanked Bernie, but said I wasn't sure that I wanted to torture Jack into speaking my language. I guessed he'd just tell me what I'd taught him to say, and I imagined he had thoughts of his own. Bird-like thoughts, from a miniature mind eons old. Magpie. One morning, the magpie finds my grandmother in her usual spot at the end of the kitchen table, with the Saturday newspapers spread out in front of her. The carotene-tinged face of then-presidential hopeful Donald Trump looks back at her from the front pages. Typical, stupid, ugly American, my grandmother mutters. She is a hard and harsh woman. Without looking away from her paper, she slams her hand down on the table so hard the crockery rattles. Got you, you little bugger! she says, flicking a dead fly onto the floor. The magpie is charmed. She, too, has passionate feelings about flies. She strides across the scarred wooden surface of the table and hops onto my grandmother's forearm, bowing and clucking ingratiatingly. What a clever little bird, she says. Do you think she can talk? Magpies can talk, all corvids can, but benzene has yet to say a word. My grandmother thinks for a moment, then sees the newspapers in front of her, Fuck Trump, she says. Fuck Trump. Trump, shouts the bird. Trump, Trump, Trump. 
Oh dear, my grandmother says, listen, Benzine, fuck Trump, fuck Trump, fuck, fuck, fuck Trump. Trump, shouts the magpie, ecstatically pleased with her first human word. Before long, another crystal clear phrase emerges. Come on, the bird says early one morning as I'm dishing out worms. Come on, come on, come on, Trump. Jackdaw. I'd look up at the sky, studying tree after tree, and ask people if they'd seen a jackdaw. Pinch something of yours, that's what they do. And I'd realise that in a way he had. I still see that questing figure. I pick up his cries, the chack, 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 eight times, and the eyes, the pale blue iris and the intense pupils, studying things miles away. Jack Daw, a foot long, black, shot with steel blue. Grey nape, demonically sprightly, bustling and shuffling, jerkily swaggering, then pausing to shuffle along the ground as he turns everything over, clods and stones, looking for something reflective to present with a flourish while ripping up rival possessions, like books, into shreds. Anyone, Kafka said, who keeps the ability to see beauty never grows old. A jackdaw's hop puts a skip in my step. Magpie. I burst through a bush and surprise a buzzard. Rabbits scatter, wild magpies fly unhelpfully to and fro, each one making me less certain that I'm chasing the right bird. Different dots pull in different directions, and soon I no longer know which one to follow. She kaleidoscopes into a dozen birds. I track the most likely magpie down into the valley, through more bushes and hedgerows, and finally into a bog. There, with my feet sunk into the ground, she swoops down at last and lands on my arm. I think about catching her and taking her in my hand home, but I can't. I try to capture every detail instead. The gentle touch of her talons, the unexpected warmth of her feet, her eyes, once grotto blue, now river brown in the sun, the impossible petrochemical shimmer of her feathers, the shifting bands of green, gold, purple and blue, making her a different bird from every angle. She strops her beak against my wrist one final time, then with a shrug of her wings, she takes off. I track her through the sky as she arcs over the lake, over the river, towards the smoky purple of the woods. She cuts through the air, towards the distant horizon, and then, like a comet winking out of existence, she's gone. Thank you. for the song written in response. I am Matsudiso, that is my name. It is a South African name. I am half South African, other half of me is Jamaican. Matsudiso means blessing in Sutu, that's the tribe that my father is from. So I'm a creative person who has a passion for social justice. I do believe in civic duty. I do believe in sharing knowledge and sharing skills and musicians getting paid properly. That for me is a justice issue. My father is um, South African, as I said, but he went to prison because of his political beliefs. I was going to marches in my pushchair. I remember being in a pushchair in marches from the age of like three. So it's kind of in our family DNA, but I guess I express it in a non-traditional way. 
As well as being a songwriter and a teacher and a human rights lawyer, Matsudiso is also the creator and the host of the podcast Holding Up the Ladder. There is this idea that people feel when they get to a certain place, I've had to graft, why should I help you to graft? And I'm just like, for the sake of art, we would get further as artists if we didn't all have to repeat learning the same things. There are always things that we'll have on our personal journey. So that's why I started up Holding Up the Ladder. It's about as we ascend, we keep the ladder held up for everyone that's coming up after it. And so one of the things I always do in every single episode is ask the person. And I don't just interview musicians, I interview all creatives, architects, painters, filmmakers, um, you name it. And I always ask them, what lessons have you learned that we can learn from? When you're reading words, you start to create images through these these words. And so I just had this whole visual if, if I'm thinking about, okay, I want to write a song about something, I see it, and then what I do is narrate what I see, essentially. Joni Mitchell recently played at the Newport Jazz Festival. She changed how I wrote songs. When I first listened to Blue, I was like, oh my God, songs don't need to rhyme. You don't need a verse, pre-chorus, chorus. Joni Mitchell tells stories. So the chorus actually came first. Who can tell a bird not to sing? They're just born to do it, right? Who can tell a bird to spread their wings is in its blood. Who can tell a father to love their child? And then the music side, I was trying to imitate sort of bird-like sounds. So there's lots of short runs. And because one of my favorite pieces of music is um, Vaughan Williams' The Lark Ascending. And the violin has this beautiful just run at the beginning that just sounds like a bird swooping in and out, swooping in and out. Because my house overlooks a big garden with so many trees, there are just birds all the time. And so I recorded, I just stuck a mic outside my bedroom window and literally all you'll hear is birds. I just thought it'd be interesting to describe what I see and hear in my house. Crows and magpies, they don't sound like they're singing, they sound like they're shouting. In, in London we have um, greengrocers, they would shout like five lemons, pound a pound, and they shout, shout, shout. They give you the fruit in these brown paper bags and they'd spin it and it was like knotted at the end. It's like, thanks love, thanks darling, la la la, pound a pound, that's how they talk. And, and you'd hear them shouting because the idea is that they're trying to draw you to them. And crows to me sound like that. The magpies are just on the top of the windowsill, but they sound like, um, you know, in the Muppets, those two old men that would sit like in the peanut gallery and just chat and they sound like that. They sound like they smoke cigarettes and they're just gossiping about something. You start to shift how you see your parents and you start to understand their choices sometimes. You start to hopefully have compassion for them and how hard being a parent is. Being a parent is extremely difficult. When I think of like the story of like, you know, my dad literally crossing the whole continent of Africa as a 19 year old, of course those things are gonna impact how you parents in an age where that generation of people did not go and have therapy.
so my parents got married, got divorced. So my dad, you know, left and went to South Africa. Because of apartheid, he couldn't go back. And then when apartheid ended, he was like, I'm out. He always wanted to be home. And so I spent up until I was like 15 with my dad and I was a dad's girl. And then we spent a long time not talking. So I would say there is like a connection, then a rupture and then a reconnection. What I've had to learn, and this is what I mean about compassion, is that people do the best they can with what they know. Reading about, you know, Heathcote, Charlie's dad sort of abandoning him. In some ways, I resonate that with that, not for the same reasons, but I know what that feeling of untetheredness feels like. I became um, a Christian in my early 20s, and that sense of untetheredness went because I experienced the love of God, and that is something that has really transformed my life. My dad um, had short hair, and my mum, my mum has long hair, and we went to the hairdresser with my mum, and they were like, do you want to have your hair like your mum? So I was like, no, I want to look like my dad. I want you to cut my hair like my dad's. I used to try to pee standing up because I wanted to be like my dad's. I have friends that died young. They were like young people. When they died, I it was this, there was a very beautiful feeling of not feeling, oh, I wish I'd said this to them, or did they know what I felt about them because they knew? I, tr I, I think on my end, I'm like, okay, can I, have I done everything that I want to do in this because I want love to lead? This is Matsudizo with a spoken word piece followed by her song, Who Can Tell a Bird, both recorded live in the clock tower of St. Pancras Station. I live in an old Victorian house. The slightest breeze causes the doors to shake and the windows to rattle. In the summer, it retains all the heat, and in the winter, the windows are covered in condensation, as if they too were chuffing out warm air to see their breath in the cold. I am the same height as the trees. I watch their leaves catch the morning light. I listen to them applaud as the wind rushes through them. These trees hold the rhythm of the garden. Like a conductor, they seem to give the wildlife their cues. We start with a familiar rhythm of the wood pigeons. Quaver, dotted quaver, crotchet. They are the woodwind. The blue tits dart about with their song that marks the morning. There are two or three of them. I've named them Peter, James and John. The crows, always bold, drown out the other birds, bold as brass. Their carrion call isn't a song. They sound like greengrocers yelling at the price of fruit, wrapping their call in brown paper bags, twisting the corners in a knot. Now the magpies seem to have found a seat just under my window. They don't seem to fly about, they just chat noisily to each other similar to a stuttering car ignition. They talk and talk and talk, light a cigarette, cough their way through it. I watch the clouds roll above, the sun moving east to west. The 
as love? Do they feel sorrow? Do they sacrifice? Do they disappoint? Do they abandon? Do they want more out of life? A magpie is known as sentimental by their feathered kin. Is that why they build their nests from other people's things? Who can tell a bird not to sing? They're born to do it. Who can tell a bird not to spread their wings? It's in his blood. Tell a father to love a child Or do they have to learn Like everything we learn Feather shed, you left a mess For someone else to find Was that your way of saying That you left the past behind To behold, you were not a pretty sight Maybe that's what being born again looks like Who can tell a bird not to sing? They're born to do it Who can tell a bird not to spread his wings? It's in his blood Who can tell a father to love their child? Or do they have to learn like everything? That was Who Can Tell a Bird by Matsudiso. A postscript to this story. Since publishing his memoir, Charlie has become a father to a human child. The magpie taught me a lot of handy tricks for having a toddler because they both respond to distraction and trickery. They're both quite destructive. You know, they both like shiny baubles. They both will dive down to the pavement to pick up the most disgusting things and present them to you as if they're treasure. You know, magpie and toddler will present you with cigarette butts as if it's the most wonderful thing in the world, which, you know, if you're looking through the eyes of, of someone to whom everything is new, I suppose it is. So, yeah, I think actually magpie was, was, a, was, was a great education for, you know, two-year-old. For a live show with Charlie and Matsudiso, I wrote a song in response to Featherhood as well. It's called Fly Magpie Fly, and it's streaming all the places. The next episode features another story from Dolan Morgan and a song written in response by the band Self Help. Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the artist and the producer who makes it, please consider a premium subscription from Apple Podcasts. 
five-star reviews, and kind words on social media and in person are always appreciated as well. You can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks, as always, to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.